The year is 1984, a few years ago now. And uh, there's a lady named Phyllis Penzo, which, as you can tell, is an Italian name. She was a waitress in New York at a pizzeria, obviously. Um, and, and, and she was good friends with a police officer whose name was Robert Cunningham. And in March of 1984, Robert, uh, he frequented the, the restaurant, the pizzeria. And uh, in March, he couldn't leave her a tip. You know, in America, you're supposed to leave a tip, 20% of the, the bill or whatever it is. And he couldn't uh, leave a tip for her. He didn't have any spare change. So he made a deal with her and he said, look, I don't have a tip for you, but how about we? I've got this lottery ticket. How about we split it, right? You pick three numbers, I pick three numbers, and if it wins, whatever it wins, we will split the winnings 50-50 as your tip. And she was like, mm, yeah, whatever, okay, that's fine. I mean, they were good friends, and she was like, yeah, well, yeah it's fine, we'll take it. So they, they took three numbers each, and, uh, and she, you know, he went off, and she forgot about it. Turns out that lottery ticket was worth $6 million. And, um, and he came back, Robert Cunningham came back and split the prize money with her, $3 million each. Uh, and they actually made this into a movie called It Could Happen to You. I don't know if any of you have seen this film, but that's based on, I mean, the premise is based on this event, this true story. The rest of the movie is pretty fictitious. But in this film, it happens really early in the film that, that um, he comes back to uh, give her this ticket and, and share with her the winnings. And for a long time, she doesn't believe him because it's just too good to be true, right? The fact that, yeah, this ticket is worth millions of dollars and I'm going to give you half of it. Um, just too good to be true. Now, I don't know if you've ever had that feeling, uh, if you've ever thought, oh, something is just too good to be true, that um, whatever it was has happened to you, that something suddenly fortuitous has happened, you get some good news. There's been plenty of times in my life and in my family's life that people have been generous to us, and you just kind of you go, I don't actually believe it, that this has happened. Uh, it feels a bit weird. You have this kind of feeling of awe of how things have turned out, and you just and they just kind of come out of the blue. And that's the situation we're dealing with today in our I am statement. So we're in John 11, uh, as I said before. You can go there if you want. Um, and the thing that we noticed about these statements is that they're often connected with signs. Not always, but connected with signs. The miracles in John's gospel, he calls them signs, and they're signs to point to something deeper. Uh, often a physical example of the saying. So we've dealt with a couple that were signs that were linked with these sayings. Can, we, can you guys remember what they were? What was the first sign that was linked with a saying? It was our very first saying. Can you remember what it was? What miracle did Jesus do that led to our... Sarah, you should know this because you made emoji stories about all of these. No, that was his first sign, but what was the first sign that was connected with one of these I am statements? I think it was actually his fourth sign that he did. Oh, yeah, look at that. There you go. Feeding of the 5,000, right? I am the bread of life, okay? And he uses the, the fact that they come back to get more food as, as a kind of a launch pad into his saying. Now, the next three sayings were all kind of connected with another sign. Uh, what sign was that? Do you remember? 
Yes, so that was the saying. So the, the three sayings were, uh, I am the good shepherd, I am the door, and I am the light of the world. So what? it's particularly with I am the light of the world that the sign was connected. Do you remember what it was? Oh, you guys, you guys, are test, I'm testing your memory. I'm going to give you the answer. It, it was the healing of the man born blind, right? Okay. And here in John 11, uh, we're at the last sign. This is the last miracle in John's gospel that Jesus performs before he rises from the dead. And um, so this is the last one. The first one was turning water into wine. This is the last one. And I point out all of this just to say that because this sign is so spectacular, I mean, walking on water is pretty spectacular as well, but bringing someone back to life, it's this, this miracle has actually been debated a lot, especially by people who look at the scriptures and go, uh, we want to take out all of the supernatural elements. You can kind of explain away some of the walking on water and the water into wine. It's kind of, you know, trickery or whatever, but they're like, no, this one, definitely we have to reject it completely. It didn't happen. And it just reminded me of the story of, because it's the resurrection of Lazarus, I was reminded of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And at the very end of that parable, Lazarus is in paradise with Father Abraham, and the rich man is in Gehenna or Hades or wherever it is. And he's looking and he's trying to talk to Father Abraham and say, can you send someone to tell my brothers about this horrible place. I don't want them to go. So he says, send Lazarus to my father's house. So he's like, send him back, you know, <laughs> um, because I have five brothers to warn them that they may also, they won't also come to this place of torment. And uh, Abraham says, well, they got the scriptures, right? Moses and Abraham and the prophets. Um, Abraham said, Moses and the prophets, they should listen to them. It's like, no, no, but if someone from the dead goes to them, then they will repent. And then this was the thing that, remind, that, I, that I thought of when people reject this idea of Lazarus rising from the dead, that it's too good to be true. He says, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, if they don't believe the scriptures, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead for some from heaps of people someone coming back to life after they died is just it's odd it's weird it's it's something that we don't believe it's the idea that we might die and then there would be some kind of life after that we might come back it's it just baffles a lot of people but that's what our passage is about today and it's quite a funnily enough it's been quite a controversial chapter john 11 throughout the years and so we're going to dig into it this morning but why don't we pray as we come to, to that? Jesus, uh, we just thank you for, um, for this chapter, John 11. We thank you that you saw fit to include it in your gospel, that you saw fit to um, have it as an example for us. We thank you that you did raise Lazarus from the dead and all of that, what that means for us today. We pray that as we explore this, you would... Uh, uh, open our hearts that we would be able to understand and you would illuminate for us what you are saying to us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've got to give some context, right? And and one of the reasons that I played the videos because, well, frankly, I miss the animated Jesus videos, right? But also it helps to give our story some context. And you might have picked up on some things in that story in the video 
that will help to give some context here. But Jesus is in a small town not too far from Bethany. Uh, I believe the name is called Paran, but I couldn't find it exactly. Uh, He's at the place where John the Baptist was first baptizing people. And he's not too far from Bethany. In fact, you could probably, in modern day, drive there in about 40 minutes. Okay, I, I measured, I found out how far away it was in one of my commentaries, and I looked it up on uh, Google Maps, and I found that actually it's the same distance as my childhood home in Swanson to here. Okay, So I found out, I was like, oh, I wonder if it's about that far away. And it was. But if you imagine walking from Swanson to here, right, it would take about a day if you're walking really fast. Um, in a straight line. And so uh, it was about a day's journey. Given that information, we can figure out if Jesus traveled back and Lazarus had been dead four days and he waited two days before he traveled and it's a day's journey there and back, then Lazarus was already dead by the time that Jesus found out that he was sick. Okay? Uh, Now, Jesus would have known this. So why did he wait for two days? Okay, because he was it because he was like, well, I don't know if I'm going to do this or not. Well, I don't think so because in John 11 verse 4, after he's heard it, he says, "This sickness will not end in death." Even though Lazarus is already dead by the time Jesus finds out about this, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So, why did Jesus wait? Well, there's lots of speculation about this, but the the theory that is most commonly put forward is that in ancient Judaism at the time, there was a uh, belief, a theory, an idea that the soul hung around the body for three days after someone had died, just in case, you know, there's a clerical error and they're like, oh no, sorry, you weren't supposed to die, you can go back or whatever. Apparently, uh, after three days, that all the papers were sorted and you were definitely dead and the soul has disappeared. So Jesus is waiting until Lazarus's soul. Uh, I don't know if it's if it's still believed today. I don't know if it's true or anything like that. It's just a common belief at the time, and so Jesus is waiting to make sure that everyone knows that Lazarus is like dead, dead. It's not like he was sick and he kind of recovered because he needed to sleep for three days or whatever. So he's hanging around. Uh, he he waits so that everyone knows that Lazarus is certainly dead, so that his miracle. There's no doubt about it. And so the body in ancient Judaism is buried the same day as death and then laid in a tomb for a year and then a whole lot of other stuff happens. So Jesus uh, knows that Lazarus is already dead. He's waiting just to make sure. He goes back and he meets Martha. And this is the same Martha from Luke 10, right? Mary and Martha that we always talk about. But here she's grieving for her brother. And just as as a side note, just to let you know, uh, there's there's a... like a rock tomb that was discovered in where modern-day Bethany is. And inside um, the tomb, there's all these ossuaries. You know what ossuaries are? They are boxes that hold bones. So that's what Jewish people did. They, they buried the body the same day, then they waited for a year, they came back on the anniversary of the person's death, and they gathered the bones and put them in these ossuaries, these boxes. And they found um, this tomb full of all these old stone boxes, and they all have inscriptions of names on them. And amongst the names there was Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, which is really cool, right? It's very cool. Just a side note. So Jesus meets Martha, and he comes, she comes out to Jesus, and she, the first thing she says, I love the chutzpah of this woman, hey, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. <laughs> it's like, 
because she knows, right? Jesus is a healer. He heals people. He can do all this stuff. She's like, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. Because you weren't here, my brother's dead. It's pretty, I mean, to be fair, she's grieving, so that makes sense. And I love the last sentence where she's kind of like a little bit of a, but I know that whatever you ask from God, he'll give you, hint, hint, you know. Um, Jesus responds to her. He says, your brother will rise again. Martha goes, okay, yeah, yeah, sure. I know he'll rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus says to her, no, 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 no. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So Jesus is saying he is the resurrection and the life. Three things that we can take out of this today. More than three things, but three things that I want to explore because I want us to move along. Jesus has the power over life and death. And this is really the main point of all of this, right? This is the, the crux, the center point. This is what the sign is all about. This is everything about this. Jesus has the power over life and death. He's saying this and he's performing the sign to show that he has this. And we can't separate the saying from the sign in this case. Now, Jewish funerals were uh, very emotional. Middle Eastern funerals still are today. I'm sure you've seen in news coverage over the last 50 years since um, Israel became a state and there's been all this conflict in the Middle East. Every time there's a funeral, you see the weeping and the wailing and the screaming and the crying and all of this. And even back in the first century when death was really, really common at the time, um, they still had these funerals that were like this, right? I mean, the life expectancy of someone back then, the average was between 35 and 40, right? The sweet spot, 35 and 40 years old. So a lot of people uh, died really young. So death was a very common thing. But even despite that, despite the fact that it was there, it was never normalized. It was never kind of pushed off to the side. Always it was an occasion for deep mourning and sorrow, you know, sackcloth and ashes and the beating of the chests and the shaving of the heads and all of this sort of thing. It was a big deal to mourn for someone. The funerals lasted seven days. And in that mourning period, all the extended family, people that we probably would only see at a family reunion, you'd have like 50 people, 60 people all just gather around and they're all there in the middle of this funeral, four days in, and they just gather around Mary and Martha. And Jesus is going to walk in and he's just going to turn it upside down. It makes the ultimate claim. Think about it for a second. The, the claim that he's making in him, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He's saying that in him there's true life, real life that lasts forever. And that he has the power to grant that life. And you can receive it by believing and following him. Now, this comes back to the first point we talked about all those weeks ago when we talked about how Jesus, by saying, before Abraham was, I am, he was claiming to be God. To the point where he can say in John 10, he says, I and the Father are one. We are the same. So it makes sense that Jesus would claim, since God the Father has created everything and gives life and breath and everything to everyone, that Jesus is claiming the same thing. 
He's claiming to have power over the last enemy. The fact that this enemy that we all face, that everyone will face one day, this enemy of death, that final line that we all cross, actually isn't the end. It's not the last thing that happens. That's a, a radical claim. And he's going to go on to show his power over that in a little bit. The second thing that he tells us is that those who believe in him will have eternal life. Right? We go all the way back to John 3.16 here, right? And he's repeating this. He's saying, if you believe in me, you will have eternal life. And one of the things that we, we've kind of, I've seen anyway, I've picked up on as we've read through John's gospel and we've read these sayings about Jesus, is that um, Jesus seems to start from the wrong end. For most people, because he, he's focused on the next life quite a lot. He's focused on the spiritual. He's focused on the, the the setting people free from sin. He's focused on people's souls being pure and righteous before God. That's kind of where he starts, making people right with God. The stuff in this life is all an outworking of that and a display of who Jesus is and what life in the kingdom is like. So the reality for Jesus is actually the eternal part of our existence. That's more real than what we experience now, which is really hard to wrap your head around, which is why I always think, but Jesus, you're talking about like all this eternal stuff. You're always talking about eternal life and, and our souls and everything like that and the spiritual stuff. But what about this stuff here? For Jesus, that's all outworking. For Jesus, life in this world can be described by the same way that the preacher in Ecclesiastes describes it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, right? And he goes on to say, What does man gain by his toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south goes to the north and around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear with hearing. And so he talks about this vanity of vanities. And the way that he uh, describes that is hevel. That's the the kind of Hebrew word. And that word is like vapor. It's like mist. It's life that is here today and gone today. It's mist that appears in the morning. You know, you think of summer and you think of the, the dew on the grass and then by the midday it's gone. That's what he's talking about. And for Jesus, that's the same sort of thing that he's talking about. But the next life for Jesus is forever. It's eternal. It will never end. Not only that, but we live now determined by the end goal. We've talked about this before, how the, the life in the kingdom is determined by our end point. We start at the end and we work back. If we believe that we're going to be living in the kingdom, then we will live as citizens of the king. But if we don't, then that changes the way that we live. Who our Lord is will change how we live. And we talked about this a little bit last week when we talked about how people uh, live for themselves a lot today because they have this materialist view that, um, and this autonomous view. Now, I don't know if you knew that uh, autonomous is, na is made up of two words, two Greek words, auto and nomos. And nomos means law. 
and auto is unto itself, right? So we are, when we say we're autonomous, it means that we are our own law. And that's the way that people live. That's how they infuse this life with meaning. But for us who follow Jesus, we're not autonomous. We are dependent on him. And he is the one who infuses our lives with meaning. And he offers us the chance to experience true life with him forever. And that's what Paul says. Here, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what Jesus is saying. We have the opportunity to rise again at the end of time, on the last day, to live forever in bodily existence in the kingdom of God. But lest you think that he's all about the next life only, he is also saying that this new life is available now. That's why he raises Lazarus, because Mary already, Martha already believed that Lazarus would rise on the last day. He's like, your brother will rise again. And she says, yeah, I know he's going to rise on the last day with the righteous. But he says, no, I am the resurrection and the life. That happens today. Otherwise, he'd just have left it there and be like, yeah, let's go to the tomb and I'll be sad with you. But he raises Lazarus back to life. And he wants his followers to know that in this life, there is a taste of the next life that is available now. Paul has this written throughout all of his letters, right? You can see it uh, when he uses words like down payment, right? There's a few of them here. First, Second Corinthians 1, 22. He has put his seal on us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a down payment. And then later in the same letter, now the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave us the spirit as a down payment. The Holy Spirit, he says in Ephesians, is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. He also uses the idea of first fruits. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, this is in Romans 8, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Right? He's not just talking about a disembodied existence here. Paul's very uh, you know, certain that this redemption involves our physical bodies. And the idea is that the future, the kingdom where we can be resurrected, has broken into the present now. The manifestation of the kingdom can be had here and now as a first fruit, as a down payment. And you know the idea of a down payment is like a lay-by. You put stuff on lay-by. You go pick from the store what you want. You take it to the counter. You say, I want all of, put this all on lay-by. And they're like, okay. And you have to pay a deposit. And the deposit signifies that you will come back and fulfill your promise to pay the rest of it at a later date. That's the sort of thing that Jesus does for us. He, the Spirit who lives in our hearts, as Paul said, is that down payment, that guarantee, that, that first payment, that yes, you can be certain the kingdom is coming and God, Jesus, will return to fulfill that. And he shows this by raising Lazarus and by resurrecting himself that the next world can be accessed now. And the spirit that we have is the promise that it will be fulfilled. Now, when we follow Jesus, as Paul says, he gives us the Spirit into our hearts. That means no matter what situation we face in life, 
we're able to live out the life of the kingdom. That's what the Spirit does. He empowers us to live out the kingdom life. Now, whatever situation we may be in, whether it is difficulty or prosperity or persecution or freedom, I often think of the countries that are listed in the open doors watch list, places like North Korea and and those places where it's illegal and uh, punishable by death to be a follower of Jesus. And I think, would I be faithful to Jesus if I lived in those countries? Under those conditions, would I say stay strong? Would I still follow? Well, I don't have the answer to those questions, but I do praise God that he's placed me here and now in this place. And all I can try to do is live faithfully here. But that's the power of the Spirit at work in our lives. That's what he enables us to do. And the amazing thing is that life is available to everyone who believes. So I want us to think about a question that Jesus asked Martha when she said to him, if you'd been here, my brother would still be alive. He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? That's the question. She's confronted him. She said, look, he would still be alive and Jesus says, your brother will rise again. She says, look, I know. He says, no, no, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, even if you die, you'll live. Do you believe this? What was her answer? Her answer was, yes, Lord. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Now, you think about it at the time. Jesus was got in a lot of trouble for saying that he was the son of God, for saying this, you know, before Abraham was, I am. And she's just confessed that he is who he says he is. She would have gotten a lot of trouble for saying this, right? This is considered blasphemy to make someone else God as well. But she had faith and trust in Jesus to do this. She believed when he said that her brother would rise again. So the question is, do you believe Do we believe, not just in the way that kind of we accept that Jesus existed and he was a human and he did all this stuff, not in the way that the people who dispute that this was a real passage believe, not in the way that you might believe that the moon is a giant rock in the sky, but it doesn't really affect the way that you live. Do you believe this in the sense that it changes the direction of your entire life, that it changes the end point and so you move in a different direction? direction? Do you believe that Jesus has the power of life and death? That that power not only is for the world to come, but it breaks into the here and now and fundamentally changes the way that you see the world. There's this old creed called the Nicene Creed, and there's this line in there where if you, as you say this creed, you confess that you, you look forward to to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Is this our confession? Is this the thing that we believe this morning? Does that show itself in the way that we live? Do we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life in the world to come? And do we live it out now? Do we trust in Jesus? Or do we think, nah, that's just too good to be true? And we just kind of, we just go, I'll go along with it, but I'm just going to pick and choose what parts of the Bible I believe and what parts I, I don't. So as we come to respond this morning, and we've got plenty of time to do that, and I'm going to explain these in a little, a little bit. 
But I want you to think about this question. Do you believe and do you live as if you believed? I'm going to pray and then I'm going to uh, go into our response time. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you uh, raised Lazarus from the dead. We thank you that that was a physical manifestation of your saying, you are the resurrection and the life. And so we confess that this morning to you. You are the resurrection and the life. And we believe that, Lord. You are the Messiah, the Son of God, come into the world. So we just pray that as your spirit dwells in us and as you uh, speak to us, as you empower us, that we would be able to live that life and we would be able to live the kingdom life that we will live, we're able to participate in that through the power of the Spirit as a foretaste, as a first fruit, as a down payment of all that you have for us, our inheritance as children of God. As we come to respond this morning, we just pray that you would uh, move that, um, that knowledge from our heads down to our hearts and out into our bodies so that we may live in the world the life that you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.